This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Bagley in Stockholm. Excited to be back for the first episode of the new decade. The podcast is really starting to take off in terms of downloads and some of the great feedback we're getting from listeners. And we really appreciate if you could let us know what you think by rating us and leaving a review on whatever podcast platform you happen to use. We can also subscribe to Polar Geopolitics. Here in episode 21, we'll be in some ways exploring the identity of this podcast when we talk with polar historian Peter Roberts, who recently co-authored an article entitled, Is There Anything Natural About the Polar? Of course, Peter and his co-authors, Justinia Dahl and Lisa Marie Vanderwatt, weren't thinking specifically about the Polar Geopolitics podcast when they researched and wrote the article, but rather the reasons why Arctic and Antarctic issues and institutions are often lumped together under the umbrella of polar, and how, as they say in the article, the creation of polar identity is ultimately a matter of geopolitics, of the value states see in instruments and symbols that speak to polar rather than Arctic and Antarctic interests. So this article gets at some of the core topics this podcast is all about. Here's Peter explaining the reasons behind the emergence of the polar as a concept that continues to be useful for states and other actors with ambitions to exert influence at the extremes of the planet. The basic idea is, why do we think about the polar as a category? And by that, I mean not denying that there are such things as the polar regions. I mean, there absolutely is an Arctic and an Antarctic. But why do we group them together? And why don't we, for instance, group them with, say, the highest mountains, which have sometimes been referred to as the third pole? What exactly is it about the Arctic and the Antarctic that makes it useful to think about them in the same breath and even to build huge big structures with funding instruments and prestige around that very concept? I mean, yourself, I I guess you consider yourself a polar historian. So tell me why you put yourself in that category, why you're attracted to both poles in your own research. That's a good question. And I have to say, when I was a young man and a little bit wet behind the ears, I resisted that label quite strongly. I wrote my first book about Antarctica, and I was not very happy about being pigeonholed as an an Antarctic person. I thought, well, I write about the history of science and the history of European empire and exploitation of natural resources. And I do that in Antarctica because Antarctica is a place where you can learn some interesting things about those phenomena. And I realised as I was researching the book that there were very strong connections to people who worked in the Arctic, right down to the fact that one of the big whaling magnates, Lars Christensen, who worked in the Antarctic, he lent his private aircraft to Norwegians working in East Greenland in order to help shore up Norwegian sovereignty claims in that contested part of the Arctic. A lot of individual scientists made careers in both polar regions because the data led them to think there were common questions. And very often the techniques and the logistical capabilities, they also pointed in the direction of wouldn't it be sensible to think about both polar regions as part of a common research area? You can pose similar questions, things like glaciers, for instance, aurorae, lots of atmospheric phenomena, even certain animals if you're interested in seals. You can think about both polar regions. So from that perspective, doesn't make sense to think of yourself as a polar scientist and doesn't in turn make sense for there then to be funding bodies, academic organisations that are branded as polar in order to give some legitimacy to that identity you've chosen. How has this evolved then in this, uh, let's say, century, century and a half since the uh, golden age of Arctic and uh, Antarctic exploration? These institutes have developed, these national identities have developed. You will go into some of these topics in your article. Can you perhaps tell us how these things have become more connected over the past century or so? Sure. In certain countries, they've long been connected. And I think Britain's a particularly good example. Robert Falcon Scott famously was the leader of the second team to make it to the South Pole. And Britain's also had a record of exploration in Arctic areas. 
Other countries such as the United States, to a lesser extent, have also had exploration in the Arctic and the Antarctic, and to some extent also Norway. Roald Amundsen, very famously leader of the first party to make it to the South Pole, had intended to go to the North Pole, only to discover that the Americans had beaten him to it. So there was a clear conception in Amundsen's mind that the polar regions were one common field in which he could make a mark and leave his legacy. The interesting thing is that I think you can think about the US, Britain, and also I dare say the Soviet Union, which initially had a very strong Arctic focus from the 1950s onwards really embraced Antarctica. If you're going to be a global superpower, Antarctica is a place where you've got to be. We can think of them as being empires which at one point or another had global ambitions. France at a pinch, I think you could put in that category too. Norway, I think, is really the outlier there. And I think in part the reason why Norway developed a polar tradition was individuals like Amundsen, to a lesser extent Fritjof Nansen, who established Norwegian engagement with the Arctic as being such a powerful symbol of national identity, that for Norwegians to then go to the Antarctic and win renown, that was seen as a valuable thing to do as well. Now, other countries didn't feel that way. Denmark, for instance. There is still an annual Arctic research conference in Denmark that I've been to. It's very well done, it's very well organised, and it's almost entirely about Greenland. When Danes think about the Arctic, they think about Greenland, and they don't think about the Antarctic much at all. Similarly, in Australia, in Argentina and in Chile, there are thriving active Antarctic research programs, and nary a thought is devoted to working in the Arctic. And again, I think we can see a little bit of a geopolitical dimension here. Australia, Argentina, Chile never fancied themselves as global superpowers. Denmark neither for that matter. They're not in the same category as Britain, the US or the USSR. And I think that goes part of the way to explaining the reach of the polar. But it doesn't go all the way because you still have individuals in those countries who have common research interests that are shared across the Arctic and the Antarctic. You have individuals who find that their personal research agendas are furthered by both areas. You just don't have the institutional structures and the government interest to back it. Do you see this as being different uh, periods where countries are looking to one pole over the other? Like, does this change over time and do you see uh, certain trend lines? I'd say the big event that's relevant here is the International Geophysical Year. Many say that it's the worst named year in history as it actually ran for 18 months from the middle of 1957 to the end of 1958. And although global in scope and specifically polar in scope, there was work in the Arctic as well, a lot of the action was in Antarctica. And I dare say that's where the superpowers felt they were going to make their biggest impact. The IGY is really what drew the Soviet Union into Antarctica in a big way, which established the United States as a permanent presence in Antarctica, and which also, I think, really kick-started this idea of thinking about Antarctica as a place where prestige could be won through scientific activity, and not necessarily simply through the legacy of historical territorial claims. There's a lively debate going on among historians to this day about exactly how important the IGY was to the Antarctic Treaty. The consensus, I suspect, is that it was very important, but not necessarily the only factor. What's interesting about this is that it did define in a fundamental way some of the terms for engaging in Antarctica, and in particular that science was the main currency through which prestige was earned and a seat at the Antarctic decision-making table was to be gained. An interesting facet which Justina has explored is why countries like Finland and Canada start getting involved in the Antarctic Treaty System, neither of which had any real interest in the Antarctic before the 70s, 80s and 90s. And Justina's answer, particularly in the case of Finland, is if you've got a thriving icebreaker industry and you've got technology that can be deployed in both polar regions, joining the Antarctic Treaty System is a way not only of contributing to the Antarctic, which is a worthy end in itself, but it also earns you a seat at the table where other business of a logistical nature may be discussed. It's a little too simple to say it's about marketing your icebreakers better, but that does help. 
In the same way, Canada started to invest in the Antarctic, not just because it could contribute to constructing environmental knowledge, which it did, but also because Canadian cold weather expertise could then also be spread to other countries. Famously, it wasn't that long ago that someone had to be, I think, was either medically evacuated or medically treated at the South Pole, and it was too cold for the Hercules of the US Air Force to go. They had to turn to Ken Borek Air of Canada, and twin otters were able to step in and do a thing that the United States Air Force, with all its might, could not. And having technology and expertise of that nature available for disposal in Antarctica, that's, I think, a good reason for wishing to be involved too. You know, as you mentioned, it seemed like the Antarctic uh, was very much in focus in the, in the 1980s, new countries uh, mm-hmm. establishing uh, polar research institutes, which seemed mostly to focus on Antarctic at that time. But then in the 90s, with the founding of, or the late 80s, the waning of the Cold War, then the founding of the Arctic Council in the 1996, it seemed like attention turned back to the Arctic. Do you see that as being the case, and do you see it shifting back towards Antarctica now, 60 years since the signing of the Antarctic Treaty? I certainly think there's a case to be made that the debates about who had a right to be involved in Antarctica in the 1980s, which in large part hinged on future potential mineral exploration, that those debates brought in new countries to Antarctic decision-making that hadn't previously evinced much interest, countries like famously Malaysia and Pakistan, for instance. And their argument was not necessarily that they wanted to contribute to Antarctic science, but that if Antarctica was to be treated as a space where minerals could be exploited for economic gain, it was unjust that the countries of the Antarctic Treaty System alone should benefit from it. And that, I think, is a very good point that the Antarctic Treaty System did have to pay attention to and eventually to accommodate. In the short term, that led to the abandonment of the negotiations leading to a potential mineral extraction regime and instead the agreement of the instrument widely known as the Madrid Protocol which ensured that Antarctic would have a rigorous set of environmental protection guidelines. Famously, you couldn't bring husky dogs to Antarctica anymore, and also that there would be a 50-year moratorium on mineral exploration, a moratorium that is not due to expire until 2048. Now, the reason I think that interest starts to kick off in the Arctic is not so much because there's a corresponding decrease in the Antarctic, but because, and I think a right to point to the end of the Cold War, the Arctic goes from being a space where particular states have a heavy interest in keeping it secure and theirs, under wraps almost, thinking in particular about the military strategic significance of certain Arctic regions, to potentially a space of regional environmental cooperation. Famously, Mikhail Gorbachev in 1987 in Murmansk proposes that the Arctic become a zone for scientific cooperation and for the promotion of peace. To cut a long story short, in 1996, the Arctic Council is formed and you then have a framework through which not only the eight states who are members of the Arctic Council can participate, in addition to other permanent participant groups, but other states can sign on as observers. And notably, Eric, this is something you're one of the leading experts in the world on. Observers, their role is circumscribed in many ways in terms of decision making, but they can initiate and lead scientific projects and they can push for particular Arctic scientific projects to be initiated and developed. And through that, I'm certain that they earn prestige and I dare say it doesn't hurt if down the line they want to press claims for exploitation of certain resources and such. I mean, two of the biggest actors in the in both polar regions, especially uh, the past uh, several years, have been um, China and India. They both became consultative parties to the uh, Antarctic Treaty in the 1980s and became observers to the Arctic Council in uh, 2013. How do you think that their engagement with the polar regions has changed the thinking around the polar at this point? 
It's an interesting question. The debates over the 1980s, I think, broke apart the club-like nature of the Antarctic Treaty System and fostered a recognition that if the Antarctic Treaty System was to maintain legitimacy, it would have to embrace a wider number of countries. And India and China, as you say, were quite assertive in pushing that they deserved a seat at the table. Both India and China did sign up to the production of scientific knowledge as being a criterion, perhaps one might even say the ultimate criterion, for having a place at the Antarctic decision-making table. Even today, they've both got fairly active Antarctic programs, China particularly so. And I sometimes do wonder if there isn't a parallel with the 1950s, where a state wishing to assert itself as being important on the global stage, being a global player, is able to show that through a large, competent, well-respected program of Antarctic research. And it has to be good research. If it's bad research, people are going to see through it and you're not going to earn the prestige from it. But I think it's the scale that's important too. Yes, it has to be good science, but lots of science and very ostentatious and visible science. That does help. That doesn't have to mean that it's not good science. I do think you can do lots of good science, or I think you can do a little bit of good science. By the same token, I don't think there's necessarily a connection between small output and low quality of Antarctic research either. But I do think it's fair to say that by having the world see that you're doing a lot of science, you do make yourself visible as an Antarctic power, and that's something that's got some real consequences. And as a polar historian, Peter, do you see the 60th anniversary of the uh, Antarctic Treaty? The signing of it went into effect in uh, 1961, but it was signed in 1959. Do you see that as anything of significance or is it just a, a date on the calendar? It's very interesting that the Antarctic Treaty has survived for so long. I wouldn't say more or less untouched because the debates over the 80s did lead to the Madrid Protocol and they did lead to some changes within the structure of the treaty system. But by and large, it has worked pretty well. It's been sufficiently flexible to accommodate even fairly significant geopolitical changes from the world of the Cold War, where the USA and the USSR pretty much called the shots through the period of European decolonisation, through the end of the Cold War, and now to a period where global climate change has started to make Antarctica look a lot more interesting and relevant in the eyes of people around the world. I think it's fair to say the Antarctic is no longer quite as far at the end of the Earth as it used to be. And the Arctic, I think we could say the same thing. They're both often regarded as bellwethers of climate change. But I think that's almost a little misleading because they're more than that. They're not just warning lights that indicate climate change is happening. They could, in fact, be part of the agency of climate change because if that ice ends up in the oceans, that's going to be the prime driver of global sea level rise and all of a sudden people as close to the equator as Bangladesh, Mauritius, the Pacific Islands are going to start to directly feel the consequences of changes in the continent of Antarctica and in the Arctic region too. So Peter, one final question. Given what we've discussed here today and based upon the thinking and the research you did for this article in the Polar Record about the polar as a category, do you think it makes sense to do a podcast on polar geopolitics? Or should this be a podcast on Arctic geopolitics or Antarctic geopolitics? Or can, can we do both? I think it absolutely is good enough justification. And I take a fairly functional view of this. If enough people call themselves polar scientists, if there are enough bodies called polar research institutes and polar organizations, then I think there should be things like this podcast that address things in a polar perspective. And I've got to say, I increasingly think of myself as a polar historian too. I don't really do high mountains. I worked a little bit on mountaineers when they ended up in the Antarctic and the Arctic too. But I don't think about the Himalayas in the same way I think about Greenland and I think about the Antarctic as places that are central to my own research. That was polar historian Peter Roberts, associate professor at the University of Stavanger in Norway. Co-author of the article, Is There Anything Natural About the Polar? published in the Polar Record Journal.
You can subscribe to the Polar Geopolitics podcast on most major platforms, including Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and Acast. Check out our website, polargeopolitics.com. Get in touch by email, polargeopolitics.podcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Polar Geopol. Music by Mark Vandenbosch. Voiceover, Keith Foster. Logo design by Daniel Brockman. My name is Eric Paglia. Thanks for listening to Polar Geopolitics.